This is episode 102 of Reconcile the Isle. What on earth is going on? Rocket Man. Puerto Rico. Russia, 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 Russia. Eight accusers. Several allegations. Thousands of cases. Charlottesville. Horrific shooting. Deadly school shooting. The third deadly mass shooting in a week. Category four. California wildfires. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Government shutdown. I've never seen this country divided like this. This is astounding to me. Reconcile the Isle. Welcome to Reconcile the Isle, where we're figuring out how we can have meaningful dialogue about difficult topics. Today, we're welcoming special guest Dave Teruso, a novelist and stand-up comedian based in Philadelphia. As a comic, Dave is open for acts including Richard Lewis, Gilbert Gottfried, Maria Bamford, and Colin Quinn. He was featured on the Risk podcast episode 350 Out of Bounds. Dave is the co-founder of Philly Sketchfest, an international sketch comedy festival now in its 11th year. His latest book is a graphic novel superhero detective mystery called Alter Ego, The Other Me, Issue 1. You can read the first two chapters free at alteregoblue.com. Very excited to bring him on today. In this episode, Dave and I were two good comedians and dove right into talking about children dying and suicide. Then we determined a more positive outlook. The power of story and well-rounded characters to forge connection. If you're not sure you can like people who don't agree with you politically, then this episode is for you. Stay around until the end to hear about this episode's giveaway. And you can always sign up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get the link to all the wonderful things that me and my podcast guests give away for free to subscribers. Today, we're going to do the interview as myself, me. My co-host, Melania Trump, how do you feel about that? It means I don't have to do anything for someone else, which is my preferred state of being. Anyway, I can't make it. I scheduled that new facial of caviar and kitty litter. Good luck with that, Melania. All right, so let's talk to Dave Teruso. Thanks, Dave, for coming on Reconcile the Isle. Thanks for having me. Perfect. So tell us about your book and tell us, first of all, what your book's about. So my book is called Alter Ego, The Other Me, and it is about a detective named Chris Club who gets hired to uncover the secret identity of Blue, who is the world's first and only superhero in my universe. And basically, he's working for the for the bad guys. And once he finds out who Blue is, he has to kind of turn his back on his employers to protect the superhero. Part action and part mystery. Great. And how did you come up with the story? I've been a mystery writer for my whole sort of writing career. And so I usually, with a mystery, I start with like a puzzle that I feel like will be really hard to solve. And I came up with an idea just one day at work, my old job, I had this idea for like, a superhero identity that I thought would be very hard to figure out to sort of reverse engineer. Cause usually when you watch a superhero movie, they start with how that person became a superhero and every movie does it. And it's kind of boring now, especially like if you've seen it, like, Oh, I know how Peter Parker became Spider-Man. I don't want to see it again, but going back and trying to reverse it, if you had to figure it out, what would be a hard thing to do? And I started with that. And then with me, it's always, where am I in my life and how can I, write something that kind of resonates with me personally and that I can express where I'm at in the world. And so this story came along at a time when I was like thinking about wanting to start a family and stuff like that. And that's kind of what this character, Chris Club, is this loner who wants a family. And I was like, this fits with where I am in my life. And that's how I pick my topic. Because I always have, I have a file called Story Ideas that has like 50 different stories and any one of them could be my next book. And when I'm done a book, I take a couple months off and then I open the folder and I read them all and try to figure out which one works for me best. And then I pick one. That's how I've done it. On Reconcile the Isle, we talk about ways that we can discuss difficult topics again. And there is a difficult topic in this book. Yes. So part of what the book deals with is the death of children. And that came about because when I was outlining the story idea, 
um, my nephew's best friend, who was the same age as my nephew, so he was seven years old at the time, he was sick his whole life. He like literally lived in hospitals. He had never been to a diner be because he spent his life in a hospital, you know, on oxygen and stuff. And he needed a double heart and lung transplant. And he got that and it didn't take, you know, it was the, 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 the odds of getting a double lung and heart transplant are very slim. It was very much like he'll probably won't make it. He's not going to get that. And then a miracle happened and he got it and he still passed away. And it just, I hadn't, I never met him. My brother and sister really got close with, with his family. Um, and so they are still close with the family and I've met the family, but I'd never got a chance to meet the little boy. His name is Weston. Um, but it upset me so much because he was the same age as my nephew and my nephew is like the closest thing to a son that I have. He's my world. And the idea of him dying it, it destroyed me. And, and I was really angry. I still am angry. I've always been angry that, you know, ch innocent little children can die and, and have these lives filled with, you know, pain and, and misery. And I really wanted to explore that in the story. I just decided I changed the idea that wasn't part of the story. And then all of a sudden it was, I just changed my outline. I was like, this is what I'm going to talk about in this story about my anger and most people's anger that if there is a supreme being of some kind, why is this allowed to happen? And in the story, Blue, my superhero, is the is the sort of surrogate for that divinity. And in the in the book, there is a fire in the children's hospital and a bunch of children die. And Blue doesn't come to save them. And Club, the detective, hates Blue because he didn't come to save them. And throughout the course of the story, he finds out why he couldn't come to save them and actually like how that it's not like he did that on purpose. He, he was kind of, he couldn't, he physically couldn't do it. And that leads club to start to like him. He actually sees how much blue cares about kids. So that was my way of kind of dealing with that in the, in the sort of like the way the ancient myths were like, Oh, we don't understand why the sun comes up and then goes down. Let's write a story about it and make it a character. I sort of did that and took God and made God into blue and, I'm just addressing that sort of spiritual religious conundrum through the interaction of this guy club and, and blue and how their what their interaction comes to. So do you feel like if someone reading this had something like this happen to them, do you think that this would be helpful in a sort of way? I think so. I think that, I don't know how clear it would be to people. I mean, there, there's certain times where characters say like, you know, I wonder if blue is God, you know? So I'm throwing, I'm, I'm throwing it out there in the hopes that I'll be kind of giving that, planting that idea in people's minds to sort of think of him as a metaphor for God, for divinity in general. Um, and there, I, I hope that there's some sort of catharsis here in this story of, of, what happens and there's an there's another thing involving children that has some sort of tragic outcome in this first issue of the book and in the second issue sort of blue and and club both get to redeem themselves and and get to save some kids in in a, in a way that kind of makes them feel redeemed so hopefully that can be cathartic to people um and to me i i feel like the way people get a sense of catharsis sometimes isn't even by resolving it and giving it a happy ending because those things don't necessarily have a happy ending. But this feeling of empathy is what gives people catharsis that you read a book written by a stranger and you see, oh, this person feels the same way I do about this topic or has had this specific thing happen to them that I felt like the way I reacted to it was completely just me. And now I see that even just one other person reacted the same way. I feel less alone. I feel better about it. So that's, to me, that's always been how I've approached it. Not to sort of give, uh, uh, give the redemption or give that catharsis in the story necessarily, but just that the idea of sharing the story and, and giving you that character's emotions and their grief and how they went through it will give you sort of an outlet for your own grief to kind of put it in the story and then close the book 
when you're done and put it away. That's one of the great things about a book is you can close it and put it away and and be done with it as opposed to the grief in life that kind of keeps coming back. But also just that idea of getting to share someone else's grief and see the universality in it and feel less alone. And are happy endings um, maybe detrimental to having a catharsis? Like if, if it's a happy ending, like all of a sudden, then the kids um, get brought back to life and everything's fine. <laughs> well, yeah, that kind of like deus ex machina thing would be, it wouldn't ring true. And I, like, I have no problem with happy endings. I love a lot of movies that have happy endings. Most movies do. Um, but they have to be earned in a way to, to be, to be satisfying just as an entertainment, let alone to give you an emotional release. If you, you know, watch something and it feels like the happy ending was slapped on, it's, it's even worse than a sad ending that feels genuine because you feel like, oh, you're, you're condescending to me. You know, I, I always use the example of it's a wonderful life. That's my favorite movie ever. It has the smaltiest happy ending of all time. It's a ridiculously happy ending. But if you watch that movie, Jimmy Stewart's character goes through hell for the first, it's a three hour movie, I think for like two hours and 55 minutes to earn that ending. It's a completely earned ending. He, he's, he's pushed to the brink of despair and, and just everything is ruined for him. And that ending is cathartic to me because it's so earned and you feel like he deserved it. And it wasn't, it wasn't a day sex machina. It wasn't, Oh, some last thing came in. The, the thing that saves him in the end is that all the good people he helped, all the people he helped throughout his life came and rescued him because he did so many good things for them. Like he was the solution to his own problem. His whole story was every time he did something good for someone, he kind of got screwed over. And by the very end, he was pushed to the brink of bankruptcy and just complete failure because he did so many good deeds for people. But that very thing is why they all come together and save him. So it's not this kind of like, you know, all's well that ends well thing. It's the message of it is, you know, if you put good out into the world, it will come back to you in the end. And it's very cathartic. I think there's also something else there too. I'd love your opinion on this. I think it's like he is contemplating suicide and there's something very universal about this feeling of despair and hopelessness that I think we all come to at various points in our life. And so the whole time we're trying to figure out, is he going to do it? Is he going to survive? And we have to have him survive at the end. It has to work out somehow because otherwise it's so, it would be just too depressing. Like if he just ends up committing suicide and everyone's at the funeral at the end and like, what a great guy. I don't know if we could, I don't know. Maybe that's only done in Europe. I they're really depressing over there, <laughs> which is why I love European <laughs> film, but it just, I don't know, maybe that's too much. Maybe he's, cause he's earned it so much that if he doesn't get it, it's like a major come down. Yeah. And I mean, there are stories obviously where that happens. And I mean, we are, you know, the kind of the Western world is very sort of Christianity uh, driven. And that's the ultimate story of somebody who does all good for everyone and is killed and dies and everything. I mean, sort of comes back at the end and it's great. But like the 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 Western novel, the Western story is is so sort of focused on this Jesus savior storyline. So we're kind of used to the idea of you do all this good stuff and it doesn't work in the end, but we don't like it. And there's, yeah, I couldn't imagine a way either where it's a wonderful life ends with him committing suicide and it's somehow triumphant. Um, You know, suicide is very rarely triumphant as opposed to dying sort of as a martyr. And there are movies where that, that sort of happens where somebody, the end of, of, uh, the professional you ever see that movie with when Natalie Portman's a little girl and there's, it's about like a hitman and he, he saves her life at the end. Spoilers. It's from 1990, whatever, but you know, he, he, he dies to save her. He, he blows himself up to blow up the bad guy. And, you know, in some way that's suicide, but it's a very triumphant ending because he was able to use his life. This guy, this hitman 
sort of the opposite of George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life, somebody who spent his whole life killing and destroying life, he was able to use his life to sacrifice it to save this little girl. And it feels, you're, you're, you're very sad. It's very like kind of teary eyed. You're sad for her when she finds out that he's gone. But in the end, you feel this redemption for him. And redemption is such an important part of catharsis when it's earned. Yes. And Greta Garbo got a lot away with a lot of um, dirty moments on screen. She could kind of do it. She got away with a lot of things that wouldn't go by uh, the censors because she was always killed in the end. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there was some sort of for them. For them, it was redemption, but maybe in a way that um, to her, she was redeemed because she like killed herself or threw, you know, threw herself in front of a train or was killed or something. Um to them, that was redemption because she was getting what she deserved, which is a little bit different than redemption. Like, well, he, he him and he did kind of get what he deserved. He blew himself up, but it was more in honor of something else. Like she was also some, she would kill herself to uh, make the lives of other people easier by getting rid of her presence. So that's, yeah. That's well, the, gonna, yeah. there's <laughs> that yeah. sort of, especially in that time period, I mean, it, it probably went yeah. into the 60s, I guess, but there was that sort of moral code and that you could show someone killing someone as long as they got their they got what they deserved in the end that they went to prison or they were killed that was sort of the only way you could show people committing any kind of crime or sin they had to get their justice that's why a movie like even psycho i mean psycho ends with him arrested or whatever like they there was just no they they wouldn't allow that to happen they never let the bad guy get away with it. Like in the original Scarface movie, he blows up. Like you had to get that. And I'm so glad we're freed from that now because I couldn't write a story like that. I I don't, I, sometimes the bad guy wins. Sometimes the good guy loses or dies or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's, to me, it's an organic thing that I feel with my story that I know, Oh, this story has a happy ending or it doesn't it, it just feels a certain way it's it's like when you fall in love with someone and you just know you're in love with them and even though there's no way to quantify that there's no way to like measure it but you just know i'm in love with this person and i'm not in love with that person when you when i write a story and i spend a year outlining it and figuring it out i always have this sense from the beginning that it's going to end that it's going to end happily or that it's going to end sadly or wistfully or you, i just feel it it's just it's in it's sort of in the DNA of the story. Like my first book has a really dark ending, and like the woman who later became my agent wanted me to change the ending, and I refused to because um, I just it was in the bones of the story. It was every the very first page sort of predicted the ending. If you go back and reread the first page, you're like, oh yeah, he was leading you there the whole time, and I've always felt that way. There's just a DNA in a story that tells you this is going here, this is going there. And all of those things that you, when I do, when I'm revising are, are things where I've realized I wasn't true to that DNA. You just kind of, I just see it. You know, it's like if you've known somebody, a close friend your whole life and you know how they act and then you see them do something that's way out of character, you notice it. And in real life, people do things out of character all the time. But in fiction, you have to not allow that so much because you're setting up, people don't accept the contradictions in characters that they do in real people, unless you really, really, really make it clear how this is an exception to the rule. Otherwise, people just want, oh, if this guy's arrogant, then he's always going to be arrogant. And if he has a humble moment, we won't buy it. Whereas in real life, arrogant people have humble moments all the time and humble people have arrogant moments. And with Blue, we don't always know who he is, right? Then you're not sure if he's the bad guy at some moments. Right. You Well, you yeah, you, you don't know what he's up to you don't he's a very sort of at least in the first two issues he's a very impenetrable character he barely speaks um he he doesn't show up he has no reflection he doesn't show up in pictures so there's no video of him you have to see him in person and no one knows if he's good or bad and most people think he's good because for the most part he rushes into fires and saves people and you know pulls people out of the way of a speeding train that kind of stuff but you don't know what his motivations are. And that's on purpose. You know, it's in some ways he is, he is a figure that everybody projects their own ideals on that, that, that optimistic people, people who are good at heart think he's a great person. And then people like club who's kind of, he's selfish and he's, he's, he's bad in some ways. And he's 
working for this horrible villain just to get money. He, he projects himself onto that, that this guy's is lousy. And that's an important part of the story. And it evolves throughout the, the issues that you get to learn more about blue and what blue is doing and why, and is blue good? Is he bad? It takes a while. It's not in the first couple issues. The third and the fourth issue are mostly devoted to that. Like what, who, who is blue? And part of it was to, to build a mystery because if I, I couldn't tell you too much without revealing who and what blue is. So I had to do it slowly, but then I think also you get to observe him a bunch of different times, mostly visually, you see him in these panels and you don't even hear what's going on, but you, you, you can make your own sort of deductions about what he is based on what you see and then kind of have that confirmed or denied later. So how have people in your family who have dealt with the death of a child or other people in your community who have read your book, how have they reacted to that? I haven't really gotten it's I've only had sort of a handful of people read it so far because I just got it out. I'll be able to answer that hopefully in a couple of months. I'm curious to see how people react to that. My girlfriend actually worked for the Children's Hospital. It's weird. I met her years after I wrote the first few issues, but sort of the climax of the second issue takes place at the Children's Hospital of my city, which is called Centro, but it's just, it's Philly. I wanted to make, you know, the way Metropolis is just New York with some different buildings. I did that for Philly with Centro. So it's the Children's Hospital of Centro, but she, she worked there. Um, and now she works for a, an organization called the Hole in the Wall Gang, which is a camp for serious and terminally ill children. It was founded by Paul Newman. And she deals with the death of children on a daily basis. Part of her job, she's the manager, the regional manager. And one of her job duties is on Mondays to report to her team on which children passed away. And, you know, everybody kind of has to cry and internalize that and go off and come back. And she does that every week. And I don't know how she, she's a superhero in her own right. And everyone she works with, I don't know how they do it because I, she just tells me things and I just start crying. I'm very, very emotional as it is. But when it comes to children, I just, it, children and like animals, anybody that's sort of innocent and helpless in some way, I can't handle their, their pain, their, you know, just the idea of them dying. It just makes me upset. And I've gone, I get to volunteer one day a year at, at their camp week and like hang out with these kids and play games with them. And it's so much fun. You forget that they're sick because they forget because they're having a good time and you're able to make them laugh, make them smile. And I'm good. The whole, I always think the first time I did, it, I was like, I'm not, I'm just going to burst into tears. If I see a kid with a shaved head or somebody who's got tubes in them. And I thought I would, but I didn't, I, I actually was caught up in trying to make them laugh. And then they were laughing and I didn't, I didn't mind it. And then sort of driving home after it, I would just get weepy about it. Um, and she does kind of have her moments where it, it overwhelms her. But in general, she's able to compartmentalize in a way that I don't think I ever could. And the other people in her job must have that as well because it would just destroy you. It would just pull you down. So she's read the book. And I, we haven't really discussed that specific aspect of it. I should ask her what she... <laughs> thought of it. And I actually, the little boy that my, my nephew's best friend, um, there's a little nod to him in there. Um, where basically after this fire has happened, they're dedicating this wing and it's just, it's just in one of the panels in the background, it says, you know, the Weston Keaton Memorial wing. And I, I, I had wrote to his parents, I emailed them and I said, Hey, cause they don't live here. They live in Tennessee. I said, Hey, I'd like to put a little nod to Weston in my book is that okay with you? And I told, I said, look, this is a book where like children die tragically. There's a couple things going on here. I don't want to make it like rosy. I didn't want to mislead them in any way. Cause if they said no, I'd be like, that's totally fine. And they said, yeah, that would be fine. So I was able to like, I sent them a picture of it and I'll send them the book once it's done. I might make a poster of their panel and I, I probably will d dedicate one of the issues to him because it his passing affected me so much that it changed 
the direction of the story entirely. And the direction of the story became a lot about protecting children, became this overarching theme in the series. Uh, that's not, I've written four of, there's eight issues, I've written four of them, but it's, that's become a central theme and it was dictated by my life, which happens a lot to me. I, I've changed, even the second book, which is the third and the fourth issue, I had like a personal thing with someone, there was sort of like a suicide attempt in in my life of someone close to me and that changed the direction of the story in the middle of it. And I just knew, it kind of dawned on me as I was fixing the outline, like, oh, I'm I'm dealing with this through the story. I've always done that. So, so sometimes the endings of things change or the direction, the trajectory of them based on what's going on in my life. And I don't, I, I kind of need that. I need my life to be the arbiter of where my, my book goes because I'm trying to just show people what my life is and hope that they see enough of themselves in it that they'll get something out of it of what I've learned about how to deal with certain things like that, like dealing with the death of a child. Yeah, I, 100% of my characters are based on people I know or experiences or a combination of people. And it's always, I'll pick a character to focus on that is um, showing me something that I need to think about. And sometimes it's not something I want to think about. Like, this is not something anyone wants to think about, but it's something you have to think about. And it, it's a it it makes a big deal both for you and the people who consume what you create. And so I wonder, you know, there's a lot like of problems that we have now in this world and a lot of stuff that we have a hard time talking about. And I do wonder like if stories are a way for us to learn to talk to each other by sharing stories, or is that just like a pipe dream? No, I think that, um, and I want to come back to your characters. So I have a question because I think it's similar to how I write characters. But not only do I think that stories are the way that we cope with things and learn to understand them and learn to empathize and, and just work our way through them, they've always been the way that we've done that as a species, like going all the way back to cave drawings and sort of oral tradition like that thing is in our dna it's it's in our in our collective unconscious like life is in an objective sense a series of events that are mostly random life is a series of pearls and we have to string them together in a way that makes sense to us to get through every day. Every day, you create a story for what happened that day. You know, I get into a fight with my girlfriend, and then I think, this was because I'm stressed out about what's going on at work, and I'm taking it out on her. And it may or may not be true, you know, but we find ways to take everything that happens to us, everything that we do and everything that's done to us, and create a cause and effect. You know what I mean? That my, my, my dad did this because my mom did that and she did that because her boss did this. We find a way to make it all make sense. We make everything into a story when in real life, there's no way to know if we're correct or not. It could all be random. So telling a story of everything, anytime you tell somebody a story, even of, you know, the fight you had with somebody on customer service. You find a way to make that into a story that makes sense based on where you were that day and what you were, what was going on in your life. And you're like, I was really upset because my cat just died. And then, you know, maybe I, I was a little too um, short with this person and they must have had something going on because they blew up at me and, you know, it was like a big deal and had to go down with their manager. You, you, you kind of, you have to string them together and order them. Sometimes you move pearls around because they don't seem right. You're like, no, this actually must be how it works. So that's never not happening. We're never not creating a story. It has nothing to do with novels, has nothing to do with movies, it has nothing to do with plays. Like we're just doing it all day, every day, whenever we tell anyone anything. When you hear somebody talk about their breakup, they tell it to you in a way that is like, this breakup resulted from this thing that's been going on with me since I was 
a teenager that I always had a wandering eye and was always looking at other men or always looking at other women. And that in some way led to this breakup when maybe that's not true, but it's the story we've told ourselves. It's I am a good person and this is happening to me or I'm a shitty person and this is happening to me. But we stick to that story when sometimes the evidence doesn't play that out. Mm. But so I wanted to ask you about your characters because you talked about that when you have characters, you think about things in your life that you want to examine. So as a writer, it has to be like, I always say it's like, you know, Freud said, everyone in your dreams are you and a book must be dreams because everyone in my book is me. No matter who, you know, I have people who kill people and, you know, do terrible things and uh, they're all me in some way. And I have to find some molecule in them that I share and go with that. Or I can't write the character because I always have to be writing from, you can only really write from first person point of view. Even when you do it in third person, you have to get into that first person thing to do it, even from a third person. Um, like the, the villain in this book is a woman who takes sexual pleasure from people's misery. And she's, and she's outlandishly like macabre and, and, and grotesque. And she does horrible things to people and she brutalizes people. But I had to find something in her that I could identify with. And what it was, was, you know, whatever thing gives me sexual pleasure, I just feed it. You know what I mean? It happens to be acceptable in society because it's just, no, I just, well, oh, I like this. I like whatever. It's not illegal. It's not immoral. And I feed that. But if it, and I think to myself, well, what if it wasn't? What if, you know, hurting someone really badly is what got me off sexually? Would I, would I pursue it? And I had to kind of do a thought experiment and just be like, well, let's say I did. How would I be? And that's kind of what the character became. So do you do that with yourself? Do you find a way to like, like the character we talked about, that's like the bratty woman who gets racist. Yes. Do you go, okay, what in Lauren is like this person? Is that how you start? Well, I think part of it, so Spoiled Brat is this character who has tantrums. Um, and sometimes, and recently we've been going into, I've been going into that territory where the Spoiled Brat then says, does things that are so callous, they're, they're racist. And it started with something that's very universal. You're sitting at just like the little frustrations you have about life. And I was sitting at an elevator and my Twitter feed wasn't scrolling. And I thought, mm, there's a little part of me, even though I won't have a tantrum right now, there's always a little part that goes, damn it. So then I flipped my camera on and I started and I filmed the spoiled brat. I had a, like a, a meltdown at the elevator and the dude next to me just started laughing. I was like, my Twitter feed is laughing. <laughs> and so that's, that's how, that's how I did it. So then when I went to that level, well, it's definitely, it was definitely satire watching people um, where I was, Avalon Stone Harbor. There's a lot of callous, privileged, racist, homophobic, xenophobic attitude in that place. And I spent time down there and I was watching that and just the self-importance that people show. Now, it was rooted in this sense of like, spoiled brat is rooted in the sense of like just being annoyed about small things. So that's where I found the commonality. She's just, I think I was annoyed. She was annoyed about noise. So we've all been annoyed about noise in some way. Like I've filmed things and then had people next door and you're like, God damn it. So I just came from that, like a common annoyance about everyday things. And then the other thing was like layered on top. So there's something there that I think, you know, all people who kind of take part in any sort of art that's dance or performative or writing or whatever, we all eventually have to make, you know, kind of connect to that idea that the worst person you can think of, Hannibal Lecter, Adolf Hitler, whoever, you share many more things in common with them than dissimilarities. That That is the reality of life. If you made a list of all the things, if I made a list of all the things that Hannibal Lecter does and all the things that Dave Trusso does, when you get down to it, there's only going to be 10 different things. Most of them are the same. The ones we don't, I don't eat people, I don't kill people, <laughs> but most of the other things are the same. He loved art. He was 
you know, into music. He painted, he, you know, he was really big on people respecting him and everyone being treated with respect. And that's a big thing with me. I hate it. Like if I went on a date with someone and they were rude to the waiter or the waitress, we're not going out again. Because to me, that's how you see people is however you treat, you know, the person who's serving you. And that's was Hannibal Lecter's thing. That's the thing in that character that people glom onto that they're able to kind of go with him. He because he he has like every character needs to have some moral code, and his is be respectful, be polite to people. And people are like, yeah, I I that's the one thing in him that I get. And so okay, I can go with this because he, it literally in every one of those movies and all those books, he only kills people who are rude to him. He says, I only eat the rude, and people go. Look, I don't think you should eat people. I don't think you should kill people, but I don't like rude people either. And that is, you know, Thomas Harris, the novelist, like that is his genius, you know, sort of stroke of genius with that character is to find some, you know, something in them that we mostly all identify with and really making that the center of the character of someone who is a horrific monster. And like, I think that's why a lot of writers, artists, performers tend to be more liberal progressive politically because we're forced to come to terms that if you're an actress or an actor you have to come to terms with that idea that if you're playing this character you have to love them you can't play them as a villain you have to play them as if they're right because they think they're right and like i think that that gets us in that position whereas some other jobs force you to dehumanize someone if you're in business depending on where you've been taught like you know that some of the strategies are very cutthroat and you have to sort of dehumanize the other person to be able to, you know, do a hostile takeover and do, you know, do whatever will get that stock price up, you know, and I feel like that's an interesting thing. And that's not to say that artists are better and people who do that are worse. It's just that the thing that you dedicate your life to in some way informs your your politics in a way that can change overnight, you know, and, and if you spend all this time going, I have something in common with everyone then you have a harder time going back to your regular life and 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 discriminating against anyone because you you remember that lesson yeah yeah i've actually gotten um i've gotten flack somewhat for my melania trump impression because people say that um some people have said that it's she's just too you make her too real too uh, almost like too well-rounded which how can you have too well-rounded character but she's too she's too smart or she's just too much thought or there's too too empathetic not i don't say empathetic but you make her more complex than she is well you just don't know her complexity because she doesn't show it to anyone just the same as greta garbo i have a thing for these mysterious icons <laughs> but they want you to demonize her yes because that fits their own narrative again the stories we tell ourselves yeah. their narrative is i think trump is evil his wife must be evil too i don't want to think of anything good that either of them have done and i don't want to empathize or sympathize with them in any way so unless you're doing a grotesque over exaggeration of everything that's vile about her i don't want to see it because they you're you're ruining their story their story is you know she's a vile person she's a money grubber she's a gold digger whatever she'll do whatever to to get what she wants and if you're breaking that story in their head and forcing them to confront something that like maybe she's not maybe she did what she had to do to survive and now she's trapped in this thing and she feels bad and she really wants to help people behind the scenes and she did that like anti-bullying thing like maybe she has a lot of compassion nobody wants to hear that or the people that are uh, on the other side of the aisle so to speak don't want to hear it whereas the people who are 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 right-wing and republican i think they want to hear that because that's the story they've been telling themselves and really neither one of them are right there's no right or wrong of it it's just your interpretation but yeah, you you don't want to do you're not a caricaturist and you're not a ventriloquist. So you need to do a character that has layers. You're, you're doing it all right. But that's interesting and not surprising to me that people get mad at you for not 
demonizing her enough. Yeah. I knew at the anti-bully campaign when I came up with that, I thought, oh my God, I have such potential for comedian. Oh, what a joke. Anyway. But... I can't believe Melania Trump just <laughs> came into your bedroom. She looks very, <laughs> you can see the makeup up close. Very good. She has that smoky eye thing. So oh, she's going again. She left. <laughs> she goes to man manifest herself. Um, you guys look a lot more alike than I noticed. <laughs> ah, yes. Be best. Uh, so, yes, and I and I write in my book I, like I know I'm just I can't make anyone happy because I'm I don't think she's necessarily like the most intellectually curated person on the planet and developed. Um, she's she's not sensitive to everyone around her, and she doesn't really care too much about people. Uh, and but. That, and like, that's based cruelty. on the research that you Yeah, done? yeah, she's just more self-interested. It's a survival thing. You know, you care, kind of. Like, you care, like, in the way most people care. But she's not, like, a particularly, like, empathetic. She hasn't gone out of her way to help people ever in her life. And her current programs, to be honest, don't, are real, don't really do much. Hmm. So, so you know more about her. I haven't bothered to research yeah. her just because... It doesn't, it doesn't get me anywhere yeah. in general, but yeah. that's very interesting that you've had. So what, tell me what kind of stuff, do you just watch a lot of things about her, watch interviews? What, um, what got you there? I've, oh, I've read everything I can. It's like everything else. I've read um, stuff, watch stuff, basically anything. I, I um, have her on Google Alerts. Um, with any character I work on, I'll have certain keywords under Google Alerts, so I'll know everything that is being said about them going on. And I just keep track every day and keep on the pulse. And then if someone references something, I'll go get that and then print it out and or buy it and read it so that I'm always reading the original reference. Yeah. And you're doing that continuously. Yeah, I have to stay on top of it. That's a lot of work. I didn't know yeah, that. You know, yeah. I think people would probably just assume you got enough, sort of, yeah. you know, like the way Dana Carvey does an impression. Yeah. He gets enough to find some kind of vocal hook, and then that's it. The rest of it is his imagination. You're you're actually using real-life kind of data. Yeah. That's very interesting to me. Yeah, well, for better or for worse, I do that with all of my characters. So they're always, it's like a huge big deep dive into whatever subject I'm learning about. Cause I want to try to come from a sense of honesty. And also there's things that just aren't true. Like the Baron, the Baron Von Trump book. I just read that there was a big internet conspiracy about that. And not that I would ever think that was true, that Baron Trump is a time traveler. And there's this like sci-fi book, a terribly written one that is from the 17th century or something. And so I went, but, and, you read the but book. I read the book. The whole thing, and it was terrible. And it has nothing to do, but it has nothing to do with the Trumps. It just happens to have the same name and the title. It was just so, so I go and just to, to see what's real and what's not, and that just showed to me like the how surface some people scratch. Because if you think that book has anything to do with the Trumps, um, then you are not reading the book. So you're saying it's an actual book from the 1700s? It's right here. Yeah, it's right. Here. And then the, there's a character named Baron Trump. The only thing in common is the guy's name is Baron Trump. So people think, <laughs> I guess, that he time traveled here and just kept his name just because he liked his name so much. Yeah. Yes. So I guess the point is that if you, we need to share stories um, in order to be empathetic to each other. But we got to listen and read the whole story in order to know if it applies. I like the idea, too, that like... The, the simplest solution must be time traveler, not maybe that Donald and, and Melania named him after the character in the book. Wouldn't that make more sense? Like maybe they just, oh, that's a nice name, Baron Trump. I, I saw this old book somewhere. Let's name him. Like people want to go for the most absolutely labyrinthian, like crazy way to get to something when like there's a much simpler way to do that totally i mean well you know i named him baron but i wanted to name him count but my donald said no no son of mine will be named after breakfast cereal <laughs> she slides in she says something she goes out in the other room yeah I don't it's, know just, what she's it's doing amazing i don't know um but saying all that like creating so so i have my personal opinion about melania and it's based on research. But then there's also the fact that she's human and you're right. Like there's all the things that she does and she was in a position and got, he got elected and then she just had to deal with it, but it doesn't make her a good person or 
I have my opinion about her, but you know, it's, she's a person. Right. I don't, and I think it's good that you don't, we, we can't help but have um, a sort of a judgment about someone, good or bad. Yeah. This person's a great guy. This person's a shitty person, whatever. Yeah. We, we can't help but do that. But if you're going to perform an art in some way, you have to divorce yourself from it in some way, I think, to, to because like you said, you're, you're searching for the truth in 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 what you do and that's not what other people some people don't want the truth the, some people want sort of a sham or whatever they think whatever kind of reinforces what they think whatever reinforces what they already believe that's what people want and i've thought this of before of like like something like you know like woke comedy is in some ways yeah, I mean, it's a movement. It's a movement of, you know, people who have, you know, a certain progressive liberal take on things. But in another way, it's also sort of a brand of comedy that plays to people with similar um, with similar values. And like there's there's not to me. And this is because I have to think of things as a comedian first and then something else second. To me, there's not a real difference be- between like woke comedy and like the blue collar comedy tour or the kings of comedy. They're all sort of brands of comedy that bring with it a specific set of values. And as much as we go to laugh, we go to laugh and also have those values fed back to us so we can feel right. That that's yes. the reason that people who are, you know, right wing would go to the blue collar comedy tour and probably wouldn't want to go to a woke show isn't because they're not going to laugh. It's because laughing, but then having their values challenged makes them uncomfortable and they don't want to do that. So even though, people like comedy that's edgy or pushes things. They don't want to have their values challenged. And we do that a lot in art. I, you know, if you're, if you're super right wing and I say, Oh, this is a very, you know, lefty kind of socialist take on whatever you're, you're turned off to it already. And, and vice versa. You know, if somebody says, Oh, this is, was written by a guy who's on Fox news. I don't want to read it. And we, 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 we finally, I think, in this, the last three years, figured out the danger of that, that to, to shut yourself off to everything but your own echo chamber will reinforce bad things in you and, and prejudices of all kinds based on whatever, economics or, or loca- location, whatever, and that you sort of have to read the things you don't agree with to challenge yourself about those things because A, you might agree with some of them and B, you just need to know what other people who aren't like you think and feel and what they care about, because there's not, there's not, there's no section of the population, right, left, center, whatever, that doesn't have something in them that you don't identify with. I found, I just told you that Hannibal Lecter and I have a big thing in common. And if I can find something in common with Hannibal Lecter and say, most people have that thing. Most people don't like it when someone's rude. Um, Even if they're rude themselves, they still sort of don't, tolerate it in other people. So we've all got that thing with Hannibal Lecter. If we have that, there's no way you, you, you don't have something in common with someone because they are, you know, in the NRA and you think guns should be banned or whatever, you know, no matter what it is, there's something there. And we're finally, I think like we're ruining ourselves as a country because we're, we were not embracing this until now and hopefully we can more. Yeah. And I think that's, something to say about books like yours in which they are, it's not about any sort of side or glaring viewpoint. It's about empathetic story about people helping. Yes. And there's, I try, you know, and it's hard. This is like a thing where it probably comes from like a privileged life that I tried not to be too political in my stories. Um, But it's more about like, again, I don't want anybody to read it and not, feel like they can put themselves in it somewhere. So yeah, I don't really get political in a very direct way, but in an indirect way, there's, uh, there's representation there. Like the, one of the main characters of the book is this kid named Black Adam, who is a a comic book clerk that club goes to for advice because he knows everything about superheroes. And you find out a couple chapters in that like Adam is in the NRA and he's big into this teenage kid. He's like big into guns and like 
club who actually was a police officer for a very brief period of time is very much against guns and not into using them. And he kind of butts heads with him on that. And it's, it's not politicized in any way. It's, it's just there because it's there for a reason. It's part of the story. It's part of the character. I didn't think to myself, Oh, I should put somebody in here who is sympathetic to gun rights it, it, it has something to do with his character that I won't give away because it's not something you find out in this first issue, but it's part of who he is and part of what he does as a character. It's like integral to him, uh, this this kind of gun rights thing. And it just allowed me to address it a little bit. There's little kind of glancing blows from both sides of them, but it's not politicized and you're not meant to think, oh, this character's right or this character's wrong. They're just both there. And I, I hope that somebody who doesn't share my political beliefs, doesn't share my thoughts on guns and what we should do with them, might identify with that other character. And I'm not saying which one, but, you know, of the two with the opposing viewpoints, either one can read that and see, oh, I see myself in that character more. And again, neither of them is made out to be wrong or made out to be right. That's another thing that I think people want you to do. You have to make a judgment and you have to to kind of deliver that judgment. That's what they want in the Melania thing. They want you to say, this person sucks and I'm giving her, they want her comeuppance. You know, somehow she has to fail at the end of everything. She can't just exist as a person. Definitely. So my characters have some questions for you. Okay. Okay. So um, my character, Queens Marie, um, she's an Italian American gal from Queens. I'm familiar with her. It's uh, one of my favorites because she's very, there's a lot of similarity between Italian uh, Americans in New York and Italian Americans in Philly, as I'm sure you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, what's so funny though, like about like um, my dad is who's based, I based driving with dad on, uh, my dad is not fan of really my Italian American characters, but he is a fan of my etiquette expert named Edith. And they're talking about like moral code. People have a moral code, and his code is that people should just do the be conscientious of other people. And Edith is about that, and he and he lo- he's like, I love that Edith. <laughs> so even though he probably has more in common with the lifestyle of the Queen's Italian Marie. lady, yeah, yeah, it's the values. Like That's the thing, right? <laughs> you see people going across kind of all different demographics because someone, you know what I mean? Like two people who like. Their lives couldn't be more different, and one's from this, and one's from that, and different religions, different areas. But they both like the same kind of music, and they'd rather talk to each other than someone who had all the same values and was into, you know, rock music when they're into, like, uh, you know, yeah. opera. But yeah. there's something about that kind of common interest thing that transcends all of that stuff, and and how we kind of prioritize it is random it seems like yeah and, and it has the power to bring us together across lines because people are connecting and they don't even know why they're connecting and then they can be at least be in the same room and have something and at least coexist with each other right in that moment um which they might not be able to do other places people um, get tricked into being with people who aren't like them like, when they don't know it all the yeah. time all the time you're at, you're at a concert and you have no idea that the person next to you is like you're your mortal enemy in all ways, but like you both love whatever. Yeah. You both love Jay Z, yeah. and like so yeah, you're yeah. here. So maybe the other people are human. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So all right. So uh, Queens Marie. I want to talk about a second, like when there's like a real like national tragedy, like big, like big, like you know when like the town was found, like that was like really big, and then like there's all this like outpouring of empathy, and then all of a sudden like stories get misconstrued like that story of what happened to us like in Ewok like when that happened and as a nation all of this outpouring of empathy and connection we had for others each other was manipulated in many ways by the administration to then like start a war so like how can art help us like you know because I'm learning about like all about like art and like representation because I'm like taking like online classes about like feminism and like all sorts of things like media studies like DeVry and like other people that like seem interesting so how could 
art like help us like take our stories back when they're like manipulated by so many things and not even like to talk about like the election that just happened before like with people like getting ads thrown out their eyes and like actually changing the narrative in their minds about like who is who and like what is what like how do we take back our stories when they're being dictated and manipulated to us on like so many levels i think well the first thing you said about you know 9-11 and how for for a couple of weeks, we all felt this empathy and we all felt, you know, a sort of a brotherhood with everyone in the country. It was that there was no red and blue and there was no, oh, I'm Christian, I'm Muslim. It was, we are all in this together. And I think that was the truth of what happened. And then, like you said, uh, the, you know, the administration at the time, various media outlets, they all started telling the story of it, not the truth, not the event itself, but what we all do ourselves is, you know, if you got into a fist fight with somebody and you tell somebody that story a year later, having a year to reflect on it, you might have a different take on it than you did the day after when you're still healing. Maybe when you're still healing from that that punch in the face, you're, you're too angry to kind of see the other person's side. But a year later, everything has healed and now you can look at both sides, you can go either way with that. You can go into a more truthful place, a more empathetic place, or you can villainize and demonize to get your agenda going. And so there's, I mean, other than voting and trying to get politicians that you think will be more truthful in office, there's no way to stop that process. What you can do is add a more empathetic story to that mix that you can you know, write a story that gives sort of the other side of things, or, you know, there's some, there's such an important thing about, you know, diverse voices in all of these arts, because, you know, I don't know that I could write a great story about, you know, I'm sure I couldn't write a great story about what it's like to grow up as a Muslim American. Uh, I, I don't have that experience. I know a couple of Muslim people not very well. And I, you know, I could do a ton of research and stuff, but I still, it wouldn't be in my bones the way I've always written stories about what it's like to be Catholic and that Catholic guilt. I just know that inside and out, but that's why it's so important that, you know, especially now we're getting to a place where there's so many more voices out there. It's not, it's not just white people or white men or straight people, you know, we're hearing all these different voices and that sort of inclusion is the only real way that you'll get to a place where everybody's getting their say and that where you're kind of, you know, each time you see a thing, you might not understand like transgender people. And then if you watch transparent, you're, you're so confronted with just this, the humanity of it and, and that there's nothing evil or whatever, and it's not a sickness. And once you see that, you kind of can't go back to your, if you had like a transphobic stance, you really can't go back to it once you're confronted with humanity. Like that's the way life has always been. You, you can hate another group until you're forced to sit next to them at work or they, you know, marry someone in your family and then you interact with them and then you find out, Oh, there's no real person that you can straight up demonize once you get to know them. That's how we have the, the fun. I call it fun, but it's not great. But that sort of this interesting contradiction of somebody who says, oh, I don't like black people, but I love Steve because I know him. And somehow it's very like tragic to me that you can get to that point where like you met somebody of of a race that you sort of didn't like and like them and see their humanity. And, and, and instead of going, oh, I was wrong about this race or whatever, you go, this person's an exception. Like that's a really sad and startling part of humanity that you don't make the right leap. You, you just, you make an exception. Yes. Oh, Queens Maria says in that. Oh, so, so you're saying then it's just basically like when things are going really bad, like in really high crisis situations, we just need to like reach out and talk to more than just like the people like us, like other people, like from other neighborhoods. Like that's what you mean, I think. Yeah, I think you need to be open to everyone and listen to everyone and also like check your sources. I, I you know, like where you're getting your news and what, slant is it and is it um objective enough for you you know i've i've always stuck to i'm pretty much like very liberal but i consider myself like pretty center you know pretty like middle like not crazy liberal not crazy 
conservative, but like I tend to get all my news from uh, NPR and BBC because I find them to be very objective, particularly the BBC because they're not here. They're, they're another country. It's a different culture. They're not benefiting in the same way that when you listen to the news, you're like, wow, this is tilting the agenda and, you know, they're owned by this media conglomerate. So they might have a, uh, you know, an ulterior motive. When I listen to the BBC, I'm like, these guys are commenting on us in as objective a way as you can because they are not here. They are not part of us. And they also take the piss out of Americans sometimes. Yes. It's very funny. Yes. <laughs> and it's very like, that helps me kind of feel like I'm getting some semblance of truth as opposed to like, you know, if you CNN super, super left, Fox News is super right. And to just watch one, you're missing something. And to, uh, so I, I, I've always kind of stuck to those two. I was just kind of like, I feel like I'm getting as objective a thing as possible and then dabbling in other things uh, when I can and challenging myself a little bit. Like the book is a comic book and I, I started following a guy. It's very interesting because it was just, I watched one of his videos. I'm like, Oh, this is, it's so kind of different from my own take. It's this guy who's very white right wing and he's super gun rights and thinks that like, there should be no, absolutely no like, background checks or anything. It's a, it's a pretty like opposite to me. I'm not thinking take everybody's guns, but I'm more like it should be at least as hard to get a gun as it is to get a license to drive a car, which mm-hmm. takes months of training and stuff like that. But like his take is very different than mine. And um, he's African-American. He has a very specific take on the diversity thing in comics that is different than mine, which mine is always like, okay, good. Yeah. More diversity is good. The comics has always been a bunch of white dudes. Everybody should see themselves and he's very angry about anytime they change the ethnicity of a superhero just for the sake of it without just creating a new character. He gets very angry about that. And like, I don't agree with 70% of what he says, but he articulates it very well. And I'm interested in his view. And I, I like knowing the views of people that I don't agree with as much as the people I do. And I'm probably more stimulated from listening to him, even if I'm shaking my head no while I'm listening to it than I do getting to hear somebody say the things I think anyway. Yeah. Well, there's no yeah, point yeah. in that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's very, very helpful to me. I'm going to go like, um, I have to go. Anyway, I have to go. I have things to do. I have things to do on Facebook. Good. But but really, um, I'm going to, anyone listening, I'll give you a special discount on a facial on the number one neighborhood esthetician. Bye. Okay. Good, good luck <laughs> with your DeVry classes. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, all right, Dave. So thank you so much. So to tell us where we can find out more about you and the book. I am on Facebook as David Teruso. I'm on Instagram as Alter Ego Blue. Um, and my website is alteregoblue.com. You can go there and do two things. You can read the first two chapters of the book for free, see the format, see if you like it. And you can sign up for my mailing list so you know when things are coming out. Those are the only two things you can do there. And that's on purpose. Because if you read the two chapters and you go like, I don't like this, then you don't have to do anything. But that's what I would recommend. Okay. Excellent. Um, And we look forward to seeing uh, the reception and we see the future eight other issues come out. Very exciting. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Melania, what did you think of the interview? Lauren, you did so much work to create your impression of me that it almost makes me want to like you. Melania, it always comes back to you, doesn't it? The Trump's family motto. For the rest of us, remember, one, the power of story can save us. Two, creating well-rounded characters challenges people to accept a common humanity. And three, shared interests around music, comedy, etc. can bring people together across political lines. Maybe, sometime, hopefully, uh, let me know. Before we go into the I Don't Care Do You segment, I'd like to do two things. First, I want to encourage everyone to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It really, really helps other people find us. Second, I want to thank everyone who has made this podcast possible. Thank you to Sophia Reyes-Jones for editing, to Devin Edwards for creating the intro, Maddie McLennan for the podcast art, and a shout-out to Alan Waters, Danny Holtz, and Craig Franson who helped me conceptualize this podcast. And of course, thank you to Dave Teruso for being such a wonderful guest. You can follow the podcast on my Twitter and Instagram at Lauren Logie, L-O-G-I. 
And do consider signing up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get the free stuff from me and my guests. This episode, we're giving away free ebooks! Yay! For the next two weeks, the link over on the VIP page will bring you to a free download of Dave's ebook, Volume 1 of the Alter Ego series. Dave created a really cool experience with the ebook, and I highly recommend going over to laurenlogie.com slash podcast to sign up now and download it. And if you're listening to this after the two weeks is up, go to his website, alteregoblue.com, and get yourself a copy. Now, if you want to catch one of my shows, I do stand up in character as Melania Trump, and I have a tour coming up next May and June, then go on over to laurenlogie.com slash shows and find out when to catch me live. And, you know, make sure to join my list over on laurenlogie.com to find out when my satirical book, Inside Melania, What I Learned About Melania Trump by Impersonating Her, comes out. Listen, we have to learn how to have public dialogue again. The world's on fire and we've got to talk about it. And there's no better way to understand the importance of this by reading the headlines. So Melania, give us the top headlines in the I Don't Care Do You segment. Here's all the things that I don't care do you about. The clashes between protesters and the government in Hong Kong are getting worse. There was just another school shooting. Venice, Italy is now experiencing the worst flooding in decades due to the climates of the changes. Last year, the number of violent hate crimes went up. Next year, Google is going to start offering checking accounts, which is hell in the handbasket waiting to happen. But I don't care. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> 